and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Intentional Performers Podcast. I'm Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. Before we get to today's guest, I want to let you know you can help us out here at the podcast. First of all, just thanks for being here. Thanks for being part of our community, our tribe. We appreciate you listening, sharing these conversations. For those of you that have written a review on iTunes, we are forever grateful. So thanks for the continued support. If you feel so inclined to support us even further, feel free to go over to our patreon.com slash intentional performers homepage. And over there, you can give as little as $2 a month and as much as $10 a month to help us as we continue to try to make this podcast go. So once again, patreon.com slash intentional performers. And thanks to all of you who continue to make this show go. Now to today's guest. Bram Weinstein is somebody who I recently met, but I have followed his career pretty closely being a sports fan and being based in the Washington, D.C. area. Bram covered the Washington Redskins for a number of years, worked on sports talk radio, and eventually ended up going to ESPN, where he became an anchor on SportsCenter. And so you might recognize Bram, his voice, his face, as Bram did great work while he was at ESPN and got to be around some of the best people in the industry, super talented people. And he'll reference some of those experiences and observations that he had while at ESPN for all those years. When he finished up at ESPN, he came back to the DC area, went back to work in sports talk radio. And now he's decided that he wants to go into the world of podcast production. He really believes in podcasting and thinks that it can really transform how we receive audio. So obviously I thought, Hey, this is a great guy to get his perspective on performing under pressure when the lights are on, the cameras are rolling and to get his view on media and specifically sports talk media. So I know you're going to love this conversation with Bram and without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Bram Weinstein. Bram, excited to chat with you today. Last time we met, we were having coffee and a police arrest uh, occurred in plain sight. And so hopefully I locked the door. (laughs) Nothing crazy will take place. I think it's worth telling the story, though. You want to tell it? I mean, why? Yeah, because I've I've enjoyed telling this to many people. This is the most interesting 
coffee meeting I've ever had with a stranger. Um, we go into a Starbucks. The Starbucks has a like view of Harris Teeter, which is a grocery store here. Like it's, it sits over top. In walks people in and out. It's Starbucks, right? We're just sitting there talking. And in walks a large man with dreadlocks, okay, who walks up towards the counter. And then behind him are what appears to be a couple, right? Woman in a trench coat with a purse, guy in a suit. We're in an area where this is, you know, typical clothing of what people would wear. They look like a married couple to me. The next thing you know, they're screaming, stop, we saw you, the police, the woman, okay, who she didn't like throw off the jacket and look like Wonder Woman or it didn't flash a badge, nothing, drop the purse. Like you would, this woman was plain Jane from Rockville, Maryland, suburban mom. And this guy tries to take off and this woman tackled him down, not one, two flights of stairs. And I mean, this guy was six, three you know, football player, 220 to 240, big dude. She is on top of him. Her partner comes down to help. And then you, <laughs> you, good Samaritan, psycho, Brian. followed them down the two flights of stairs while the rest of us, like myself, were gawking and half under a table going, I don't know who this guy is. I don't know why they went undercover to get him. And I, I don't I don't know why, you know, Superwoman here decided to take him down, but I'm not going to find out up close and personal. It's amazing when something crazy happens, how your memory, uh, different accounts, I think, can occur because you had a None few, of that was true. There was no woman. No, no, there was a woman. I had her at about five foot eight, maybe 125 pounds. She was skinny. Yeah. Um, she was not a big not, person. No. no. And she was wrestling with that guy. Yeah. Down the first flight, down the second flight. The partner was also involved. But I, so first of all, I had my back to them. So you actually probably saw them tossling. Yes. Before they went down the stairs. I think I must have saw your eyes go there and then must have heard her say, police, stop. The initial reaction happened, I mean, within a foot of our table because we were right by the stairwell that was overlooking the grocery store and he was walking behind you and then realized the police were now coming after him. And this woman, like, jumped him. I mean, it was really, it was incredible. And and then my my reaction was you see a woman tangling with a male and you know something's not right. It's not just a fight. Because I think at first I thought there was just a fight because I could just kind of feel it or hear it or see it. But then uh, my instincts must have kicked in that, all right, something is not right. And then when she said police, I was like, okay, something's off. And then I, I just kind of like followed them. I think when they got to the first barrier, uh, first platform, maybe I was on top, uh, on the top of the staircase. And then when they tumbled down the second one, I went to that second platform. So I didn't like jump in. But then when they got to the bottom of the floor, her and her partner were wrestling on the ground and she said, help. She said, help me. Somebody yeah. help me. And that was when I ran down there. And, and all I did was I took the male partner and I just put my hand on his back to just try to apply pressure to help them keep that guy down. And then she pulled out a pair of handcuffs from her purse, like from yeah. her clutch. And yeah. They were these black handcuffs. They weren't. They, they weren't the silver. They were quite ones. fashionable. They yeah, were fashionable, fashionable handcuffs. handcuffs. Yeah. And they handcuff him. And then he he was pretty calm. All he said was, I want my phone. And his phone was upstairs. But to this day, I have no idea what he did. Or no. you, you don't have any. He didn't shop. No. Did he shoplift? We, we don't know. All I know is they said, we saw you. 
Yeah. But he had entered into the building. There was nothing he could have stolen, like, literally at that moment. It wasn't a cash register. So it was register. something else. And then the police station was right down the street because it felt like the SWAT team had showed up within, like, 30 seconds. Oh, yeah. And they're all in full uniform and bulletproof vests and that whole thing. And now you're going, well, who did they just apprehend here? So, like, what mastermind criminal did they just apprehend at the grocery store? So if anyone knows what happened, I've Googled Harris Teeter arrest Bethesda, Maryland. I got nothing. Didn't make the news. It didn't make the news. No. Um, it I, wasn't Lufthansa. We didn't, we didn't, we didn't see that. We no, didn't witness that. So anyway, I, I was curious to rehash that with you because I did, I went home to my wife and of course my wife says, Brian, you're so dumb. Like what if he had a gun? And that just doesn't even go into my, I don't know why this isn't necessarily always a good thing, but that just doesn't enter my mind when something like that happens. I am the guy when there's a fight, like I will go toward it. I don't go away from it. Fortunately for me, my wife is the opposite. She has logic and, um, I, we're, we're wired differently and she will often say, Brian, you need to get away from that. Um, because to her point, yeah, I have no idea what that guy, he could have had a gun. I mean, there's nothing that... I, I feel like I'm in when it's people I know, and when it, in this case where it's complete strangers, I'm out. You're out. I'm out. I'm just, I'm walking the other direction. I did want to see what was going to happen. Like, I was sticking around long enough, but to your point, gun comes out, I'm gone. Yeah. Like, there's, I'm not waiting around to see what happens. If it's people I know, I think my reaction would be different. I think. It, it's, I, I guess it serves me sometimes and definitely does not serve me others, but... It, it's a, I, I went back and talked to her about it because I was curious. I, what, what would you do? As a woman and as a small woman, I think her reaction is different. But I'm not some big, strong, grappling guy. Like, I probably wouldn't be able to help much. I'd probably yeah. just... I, I did a good job of putting my hand on the police officer's back and, and applying pressure. That's probably the extent of what I could do. But there is. There's... Uh, I, don't, I don't know what that is as far as a desire to get in the mix. I think there's probably a desire to just get in the mix. I don't know what that is. Yeah, I'm, I'm out of the mix. I, I I did appreciate that we attempted to continue our meeting oh afterwards, I was which was stupid. I, you know, like, what are we going to talk about now? And I remember there, you saying, nothing. you're yeah. saying, do you think we should just call it a question? <laughs> but but I, I remember being so jacked up. I think, um, anyway, the adrenaline of that. I was still probably jacked up when I got home and, and told my wife the story. I haven't been involved in anything even remotely close to that since college. But that was those were times when it was people that I knew yeah. had gotten involved in something like like some some kind of stupid fight, you know, at a party or something like that or at a bar. But like I when it's strangers, I'm I'm out. Yeah. I'm out. I don't want anything to do with it. I don't want anything to know I don't want to know anything about it. And it's it felt like it's been twenty years since I've even seen Something like that happened literally in front of me. And Bram's not exaggerating. They went tumbling down these staircases. The male police officer ended up with like a little bit of a cut on his nose. He was bleeding a little bit. But to watch them sort of tumble down um, was was something. And uh, <laughs> I just remember her saying, call the police, stop, help. Stop uh, resisting. I heard stop her like, stop resisting. resisting. She stop. kept yelling, stop she resisting. She was tough. I mean, she, she was, was tough. She, she, she went down. I mean, she went down two flights of stairs with a guy who is much larger than yeah. her. It was really amazing. It was a hell of a tackle. Belichick would have loved her. Yeah, he she, was, she really, it was a horse collar tackle, but it was, you know, in this case, legal. That it was a good one. So I think that's a great place for us to begin this conversation. Yeah. I don't think I don't think I've ever started a podcast in this way, which is why podcasting is fun. And we'll talk more about podcasting. Um, but 
we could we could probably do a whole podcast just on that. But instead, I'd, I'd love to really chat with you and, and find out your story, your journey, uh, how you end up getting on ESPN and being on SportsCenter. So we'll, we'll get to those sort of highlights for you. But start with your childhood. I know you grew up around here. We're broadcasting from Bethesda, Maryland. Uh, talk about what life was like for you as a kid. Um, I, I went to uh, Springbrook High School in Silver Spring, and um, I had a good childhood. You know, I had really nice parents. Uh, my dad was a lot older. He was 50 when he had me, so I had the older parent. And older siblings, my sister is 12 years older than me, and my brother's nine. So by the time I was six, my sister was out of the house, and my brother was getting set to move to Texas. So I had um, siblings as a young kid, and then I basically was kind of an only child, you know, up through high school. Um, but I had a really good childhood. I, I really, I was one of those people that just kind of knew what I wanted to do when I was a kid. Um, I would sit in front of the TV and pretend I was calling games, so I just knew and when I went to high school, I was PA announcing games and writing for the newspaper and knew specifically I was looking at journalism schools and specifically broadcast journalism schools. So I knew what I wanted to do. And um, I now know at 46 and teaching at a college how really unusual that is to kind of have a strong desire to want to do something and then follow through and do it. Um, at a young age. And it's interesting now because I feel like I know less about what I really want to do now moving forward than I ever did when I was younger. It's so interesting. We talked about this over coffee. I used to play video games as a kid and would announce, I specifically remember NHL, we'd play NHL hockey and I would, you know, he shoots, he scores. And my friends, it would annoy the hell out of them because I was pretty annoying, but I was interested in, in sports broadcasting. And for me, I I was related to Steve Buckhans. I am related to Steve Buckhans, who's the play-by-play announcer for the Washington Wizards. So I, I saw that as a model and I, I'm curious for you, though, did mom and dad say, yeah, you should go that route? No. What, what were they saying? No, they um, they were, it wasn't they weren't supportive. They were supportive of really anything I did. I do remember, though, when I got my, my first job, I mean, I went to school for broadcast journalism, graduated with a degree in broadcast journalism, worked at CNN for six months while I was looking for an on-air job um, as like an entry-level producer, whatever they call it. And I finally got one and it was in the middle of Nebraska. And I remember my father trying to talk me out of it. And I looked at him and I'm like, but you just paid all this money for me to go to college to do this specifically. Like, what's the apprehension now? And I think it was probably they didn't want me to move away for a $14,000 a year job in the middle of nowhere, you know, where you have no support system. But it was a great couple of years and I had to do it. I mean, if I wasn't going... If, if I went through this and felt like everything was going to work out without paying some dues in some smaller place, then I was misguided. So, it, you know, I, I did what I had to do. But I wouldn't say they weren't supportive. They always were. I think like, it's funny. They always, even to this day, seem mildly surprised, not when I'm on television or on the radio, but when someone writes something about me. There's something about seeing someone wrote something about you that I think adds some kind of like gravitas or levity to it because all those years I'd be on sports center. They'd never really say a word about it to me, but if someone in the Washington post cited something I said, you know, they would like send it to me as if like, you've made it. Why do you think that was? I don't know. What I don't we- know. I think it's a Jewish mother thing. <laughs> when they see their kids are written about in a publication, it somehow validates their existence. 
But the reason why they were written about was because they accomplished something. So why don't you see the accomplishment and forget who else noticed about it? It's strange. What did, what did mom and dad do for a living? My mother worked for the government, NIH specifically. She was like an administration assistant. And my father was a real estate broker. He worked for himself. So he bought a lot of houses in this region, flipped most of them, kept some of them and rented them. And you mentioned your siblings. What was the dynamic with you when you were in, when they were in the house, and then as you watch them progress, and, and you're just you know entering your teens, and they're out in the real world. What were those dynamics like? My sister got married young and had a kid um, by the time I was in middle school, because that's the age difference that we had. So I really became kind of more closely linked with her kids than I did with her because I babysat a lot for them. They lived close to us. My brother is um, an animator, and he had extreme talent. When he was young, it was, he was six years old, he could watch TV and draw Fred Flintstone. So we knew, you know, well, my parents knew this before I was born, but my, they knew. And they fostered that. They sent him to art schools, and he went to a very good art school in Texas. And then he's in California now, and he's a director, Emmy-winning director of a lot of children's animation. You'd have to have young kids to know the stuff that he does. Um, but he's done a lot of Mickey Mouse franchise-type programs. The latest one is called uh, Road Racers or Roadsters, I think, where it's, it, it's the gang and they're car racing. Um, he did Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, which was very famous for a long time. He did Curious George. He won an Emmy for Winnie the Pooh. So he's um, he's worked in that field. He's very, obviously, extremely talented. And what values did they pass down to the three of you? Um, family. You know, it was very important to them that, like, everyone stay together and be together and be supportive of one another. Uh, more than anything, spend time together. I think that that was really one of the things they got across. My father was frugal. And while I don't think he really taught me accounting, which was a specialty of his, he emphasized, you know, staying within your means, I think. But being frugal and flipping houses... I'm I'm struggling to see how those would work with each other. Uh, well, um, I mean, he wasn't hiring the most expensive renovators. Like, and it's funny, we just bought a house, and I think through that, like, we bought a house that was built in 1965, and nothing's been done in it since 1965. And I see myself doing what my dad did, which was we're kind of going step by step and doing it in ways um, that is going to be valuable down the road that you don't have to go higher and have the best thing in it to make it nice. And I think those are some of the lessons I learned from him. Um, I think being frugal in real estate can be um, something that is very lucrative if you're smart about it, you know, and, and my father, like he did things with quality. He just didn't necessarily do it with the companies that charged as much as they charged to do things. And I'm trying to understand also your your brother is part of the Hollywood. He is in the entertainment industry. Yeah. And then you're in the entertainment industry. Very any, different. Yeah. But and, yes. But but any idea? They're not traditional uh, paths. I, I wouldn't say like neither one of you, you know, went to, you know, be a doctor, be a lawyer, be an accountant. That, you know, you went into some form of creating entertainment for others. Any yeah. idea where that comes from? Uh, my grandmother was a sculptor, so I think that's some of the artistic stuff was there. Otherwise, I mean, neither one of my parents played instruments or wrote or anything like that, so I don't really know. Like, there's got to be some relatives in the background that did something like this. 
my brother's talent is extreme. I mean, he had it when he was a child. Like, they, it's one of those things where, you know, prodigy is the wrong word, you know, but like. Gifted. Yeah, he's gifted. Like, no one taught him how to do that. He just knew how to do it. And so they fostered it and they sent him to art schools and they made sure. So I think his career was in front of him. He had too much of a talent. And I mean, he's a Disney animator. I mean, that ought to tell you everything you really need to know about what kind of talent he has. Um, and he's navigated that, you know, throughout his career of, of to what degrees he does it. Mine is probably different. I just, I think I had in my head, I really like sports. I knew I was never going to be an athlete. I didn't really have the desire to put the work in to be an athlete. And I also didn't think I had the natural ability to be some of the athletes, but I always liked being around it. I always really enjoyed it. And I liked talking about it. And there's a craft to that. And I watched it very closely as a kid. Like you mentioned Steve Buckets. Well, I watched him on Channel 5 when I was a kid. This is before he was calling Wizards games. Or Glenn Brenner, you know, who's a local sportscasting legend. This is before ESPN was really popular. And we were very lucky in this area to have um, in the sports media realm just luminous personalities here. Like, really lucky. Like, Tony Kornheiser was writing a column here. Michael Wilbon was writing a column here. Glenn Brenner was on television. Buck Hans was on television. George Michael, who's a trailblazer in the industry, was on television here. Frank Herzog was incredible at calling Redskins games. Ron Weber was really incredible at calling Capitals games. John Miller was calling the Orioles games here. Like, you don't know it when you're a kid, but we were surrounded by literal Hall of Famers of the profession, and they were doing it all about my teams that I liked. So that filtered down to, I really want to do that, because they were all so gifted at it. And I know this now, that, like, clearly, like, I was really motivated watching them to want to be them. And you mentioned newspaper, TV, radio... What was the biggest draw for you? Did you have a vision for yourself as you're at, at Springbrook doing the PA? Is, is there a, is, do you see yourself on TV? Do you see yourself on radio? Do you see yourself writing in the paper? I really saw myself um, on radio and television, but I, I really saw myself covering the Redskins. Like, that was the thing. Like, I loved the Redskins. I had, was fortunate to have tickets when they were at RFK through a friend. So I get to go to the games, heyday, they were winning all the time. So, you know, it was fun, they were part of the parades. They were the Patriots, you know, I know people don't believe that now, but they were back in the 80s and early 90s. And so it was a fun time to be here. I loved them. Um, and I always pictured doing that. And that really, you know, it's funny, I've said this before to other people, that was, I was doing that at age 24, something like that, 25, I have to remember my years to get my years right. So it's, it's funny. It's like, what do you do after you fulfilled a dream when you're that young? When you say covering, what, what, what did that involve? I was there with them every day. I was a beat reporter, but for the radio station. So I traveled with them. I was in the facility every day. I covered, you know, I did it like a beat, um, except that I did it, you know, on radio. And that turned into, um, the reason why I ended up on ESPN was because of that, really, they were, I caught it at the right time. Dan Snyder had just bought the team. Dan Snyder was buying up stars. Like they had become this national phenomenon. So win or lose, they were a huge story. And because I was covering them every day, I ended up on the national radar 
because one day they'd sign Deion Sanders, and the next day they'd sign Bruce Smith, and the next day they'd sign Jeff George, and then they'd go seven and nine, and then they'd fire their coach, and then they'd they'd go sign eight more big name, terrible free agents that were over the hill, right? Everything they were doing was wrong, but it was newsworthy. And so they're the reason why I ended up on ESPN because they became a national story. And because they became an, and like, I, I think of it like Brian Windhorst does an incredible job for ESPN. The reason why he's on ESPN is because he covered LeBron James as a high schooler, right? He covered the most important basketball player at the beginning of his career, had, you know, had insight into his background, had sources within his camp and was able to basically follow him into the NBA as an insider, you know, not to dismiss what he does. He's way more versatile than that now. But that's why he's at ESPN. The Redskins in the early days of Dan Snyder's tenure are the reason why I'm an idiot. I went to ESPN because I was on their air all the time because they were making news all the time. For you, I'm trying to do the the math on this. How how relevant and how much was ESPN around during your, your upbringing? As a kid, not at all. You know, we didn't even have cable, you know, when I was a kid, um, kid, kid, like in the first, like in the mid 80s. So I remember like listening to Caps playoff games on the radio because we weren't watching them. They were on a cable, they were home team sports or something like that. We and had a we had a black box to watch home. Games. Yeah, we got the illegal black box right. in my parents' bedroom, and we'd tur- turn to channel thirty seven, and yeah. that's that's how we'd watch the Caps. Then we finally got it, and then you know everybody had cable at some point, and then you know ESPN Sports Center became, you know, really hip and different, and they were presenting it differently, and they were talking about it differently. But I, I mean, I think I was a big fan of Chris Berman. You know, early because of the way he I love the NFL. So I love the way he did NFL highlights. I always thought that was a huge mistake when ESPN allowed for primetime to be taken away. I thought it was the best show they did. And I always loved him and the way he talked about it and the way that they did that. But honestly, I didn't have some kind of like dream to go there. It just kind of happened. I didn't really that wasn't my goal. I appreciated going and I loved working there, but I wasn't trying to. In fact, I mean, I'll tell you this, like my agent, I had an agent, you know, after my second or third contract in radio. And he's the one who said to me, this is after my eighth season covering the Redskins. And I was kind of ready for a change anyway. They were sick of me and I was kind of sick of them. You know, it, it goes that way sometimes, you know, when you're the person who's an annoyance and that's what you are as a media member who's in the room every single day. Um, they were kind of done with me. I was kind of done with them. And, and so I remember my agent said, do you want to um, go apply for to ESPN. And I'm like, to do what? And they said to be an anchor. I had never anchored a show in my life. And I'm like, sure. You know, and I remember going up there. I remember told my wife when I went up there, I go, this will be funny to tell people because they're going to like audition me for SportsCenter. I've never literally anchored a two-minute show, let alone, you know, an hour-long sports show. And two weeks later, they hired me. And so you think the interest there was because they saw you on – you know, covering yeah, covering the Redskins, and then all right, here's an opportunity. Let's just take it. When you go for that opportunity, were you nervous? Were you excited? I wasn't nervous at all because I didn't think I was going to get it. Like I didn't think I'd be taken seriously. So I I was loose, and I think like I remember one interview. What one of the one of the you do eighteen interviews when you go there, and they're all long. It takes all day. It's it's tiring. Like the, all these different department heads want to meet you and talk to you. And I remember one of them said, how much of a pain in the ass are you going to be? And I said, 
none at all because you know i'm really not supposed to be here so you know like i'll be pretty thankful if for some reason you guys hire me to do literally anything here on air and uh and he laughed and, and then i went and did the audition and i think you know what probably helped me was whether they did this on purpose or not i don't know but they screwed up the rundown of what i was doing and i was able to just catch it on the fly even though i you know never anchored anything before but i think it was a i think it was a test like do you really know who these people are? Let's see if we roll the wrong video and see if you can, you know, catch up or don't run the right script. Like, can you catch up, show the wrong score? Are you able to read a box score on television when it's not the one you expected to pop up? And I know that sounds kind of rudimentary, but you'd be surprised, you know, if you go to a place like that, you know, you better know what you're talking about. Like I trained um, some athletes to go to be on television and I would always tell them, you know, I know you, you may not believe this, but I watch more basketball than you do. <laughs> and you're not going to fool me. I'm going to be able to tell in a minute if you're paying attention or not. And, you know, at ESPN, the people who pretend to be huge sports fans get weeded out really quickly because they'll find out pretty quickly that you don't know. Two thoughts. One, I'll just start with the first one. I have this framework that mindset for preparation is different than mindset for performance. And one of those frameworks, or one of the binaries is, serious in preparation, but fun in performance, humble in preparation, arrogant in performance, maybe fear failure in preparation, but be fearless in performance. As I'm hearing you talk in for that audition, there's an element of having fun or fearlessness um, that I think most great performers have when they are between the lines or when it's a live mic, they are in that present moment and they are going to have fun with it. And I find a lot of times performers will take things so serious in preparation that they'll then be too serious and too tight in performance. I agree. And they won't be able to adapt or adjust or shift because they need everything to be perfect when actually when the lights are on, they just need to be adaptable. So I'm curious to hear you riff on, on that framework. So I do take preparation extremely seriously. Like I will know the subject back and forth and I won't agree to do something if I don't feel like I know it enough. Um, because I don't want to feel that way when I go on the air. I want to be able to feel like if all the conditions around me aren't optimal or don't work in the way that I expect them to, that I'm going to be fine. Like the last person I want to worry about is myself, right? And I, you know, I teach people too, and I try to tell them the most important thing on television or radio is authenticity, but it's hard to do, which means you just have to give yourself the permission to be yourself when you're on the air for better or for worse, but you'll resonate better, right? Like Dick Vitale really is that way. Like he really is, you know, Stephen A. Smith really is that way. That is really how he is. You know, there are other people, it's obvious that they're performing to some degree and their performance is based on them scripting out all these things they're going to say. And that's why they're inauthentic. For me, if I know the topic, I feel like, and it, it's hard to describe, but you feel like you end up in some kind of zone when you start speaking. And if you learn the craft of effective communication, you will be able to automatically just do it, right? So, and you don't need someone to teach you or tell you what to say, or you don't need the box. Um, at ESPN, I found out, I can't believe this, Chris Fowler, who used to do College Game Day, which is a huge show for ESPN. He's now in the booth with Kirk Herbstreit, but he used to host it for years. He didn't use a teleprompter for that show. That is, I can't begin to explain. For anyone who's never been on television, you're probably thinking, like, well, what's the big deal? Let me tell you something, okay? It is. Like, those segments, all of them are timed, right? 
And the mountain of information that he has to retain to be able to do that about all of those teams at a moment's notice is astounding. And I remember thinking, like, I remember one time at ESPN, they gave me an opportunity to do a show that nobody saw that was on ESPN News called The Beat. And it was supposed to be offbeat. I think they liked my writing. And they liked that I was able to, you know, take some offbeat viewpoints of things. And they figured they'd give me this opportunity to do something nobody was going to see. And I remember one of the executive producers asked me, okay, what if we took the teleprompter away? Would you be able to do it? And I remember saying, no. And that was a mistake. Because the truth is, I could have, and it probably would have been better had I not relied so much on my writing. Do you have any idea how Chris Fowler prepared? No. I mean, I'm guessing that he studied these teams, you know, and he probably, this is not unlike Mel Kuyper. Mel Kuyper is a savant. He has an unbelievable memory. He can remember all of these draftees he can even like you could go to him now and ask him a specific year and he will remember all of these numbers and he's got a photographic memory for this stuff I don't have that and my guess is Chris does because I don't know how else he could feel comfortable going on the air about all of these different teams and be able to completely recall all of these different facts I think there's a limit to most of us and his was limitless it's so interesting because I think about podcasting and this is my attempt to be some sort of media thing or whatever you want to call podcasting. You probably have a better sense of it than I do, but I don't really, I'm not trained to do this. I don't really know what I'm doing. I use certainly my background in in coaching executives and athletes and how do I listen and how do I communicate? I use that here, but I listen to certain podcasts where I can tell that the person is so prepared and they have their questions ready and they're, they're just going from question to question to question to question. And one of the things I love about this medium for me is I have like five or six things that I know I want to hit on with the person, but I find if I over prepare, I won't, I won't be so into every word that they're saying because I already know it. So it's not as interesting to me. So I try to prepare enough that I know enough and then I allow myself the space to just see where the conversation goes. And I find that often the best questions and the listeners can email me and tell me that I'm wrong. But I think the best questions often occur when I don't have the teleprompter in front of me. I'm using air quotes because I can in that moment shift gears if something interesting is said that I might not have expected. And those are the gems that I love. I love sifting for something that maybe the person hadn't thought of or maybe the person um, hasn't even shared. And those are the moments that, that I just love. So it's been an interesting experience for me jumping into this space because I want to be prepared and I want to make sure I've got a game plan and I don't want it to feel like a teleprompter. Yeah. Um, interviews, um, it is so clear when someone's not listening and that's sad, you know, for, I think for a viewer, it's so clear when someone said something and you don't, and there's no natural follow up there, then the interviewer wasn't listening. Like they they were so hell bent on remembering the next question they were going to ask, they weren't even listening to the previous answer. So how do you listen while still being like when you're working uh, on TV? Well, you got to know the topics. Like you got to know what you're talking about. Like if you're going to sit down and talk to the president, um and you have scripted questions, you're wasting his time, you're wasting everybody's time. Because it, honestly, you don't know, in the case of this particular person, what he's going to say, right? He could literally say anything that opens the door for 
obvious follow-ups to it, right? But if you went into this going, I have these eight topics I need to talk to him about and let him just say whatever he wants without any kind of follow-up to it, then it's obvious to the listener. You can tell like when that happens. The other thing too, and I tell this to everybody and we learned this, we had a great interview coach at ESPN. His name was John Sawatsky. And he would often talk about that, you know, whatever you do, he is leave everything lean and open-ended is what he would say. He would say, you know, you're way more powerful when you just ask a how or a why question and don't give this whole preamble of all these things to try to prove to the person that you're talking to them that you actually know what you're talking about. You're better off just asking simple, lean questions because you'll get real answers, ones that don't come with yes or no and ones that don't allow for the subject to use your thoughts against you to back out of answering the question. So if you start, you've seen this a million times, and someone interviews someone and they just start telling you like, well, this happened and this happened and this happened and then that happened. So why then did you, and that person then answers the question by correcting all of the things that you said leading up to it without ever really asking the question. Instead of just asking, why does your administration, um, you know, enforce a child separation policy? Forget the preamble, okay? Just ask the question, the question you're trying to get to. Or to a sports athlete, why did you throw the ball there? They have to give you, you, you don't have to tell them how much you know about the plays that they run or the plays that were called earlier or the, you know, the things that he did earlier in the game. Don't do that. Just ask a very simple question and you oftentimes will get a real answer out of them. And then if you're listening to them, then follow up. And if you know the subjects you want to get to, why did you script out your questions anyway? What, you, you can't think of, a, of how to ask a question? You know, like, come on. Like, th- this isn't as hard as it looks. You just have to get used to it. And there are, and like I said, there's a craft to this stuff that I don't think people understand when they watch. When you see somebody who's really, really good on television, specifically a host, there are a lot of technical things that are happening there that they don't really think about day to day, but they've practiced over and over or emulated from other people that they really like and they've incorporated. Who are the people that you emulated? I loved Glenn Brenner for people who's in, who are in D.C. and would remember him. Um, I loved him for his ability to be, I think, off the cuff and witty and prepared, right? And he also, I think, was just very naturally funny. And that's why I really liked him. Um, when I worked as an intern and then with Andy Poland for a long time in sports radio here in Washington, he was amazing at what we call teases. He was incredible at getting into a segment and setting it up and getting out of a segment to, to explain to you why you need to stick around. And you learn as you go along how important that is, that time spent listening or keeping people engaged is important, um, especially in long form, which there's less and less and less of because of the Internet and because of the way we're, we're you know, uh, consuming content now, especially younger generations. Keeping people engaged more than a few minutes is very hard to do. With less uh, options in the past, there were people that were either good or bad at it. Andy was amazing at that. And there's just a number of others. I mean, you know, some of the ESPN people, the way they wrote, the way that they kind of went about, you know, their approach to things. I think you you try to find your voice, what is organically like you. It's funny, like when you write things and you think you would say that and then you say it out loud and it doesn't sound like you, oftentimes... That is a you're projecting something onto your own personality that you wish you were or think you are. You're better off. And it takes time when you write, say it out loud. Does this sound like something I would actually really say or does it sound like something I thought I should say? And once you get to the point where you're speaking the way you normally would, but you're doing it in a professional manner, then all of a sudden you're just yourself. How, how much of that job is writing? 
uh, a lot. I mean, a, a good amount of it. Um, you know, some people like uh, Colin Cowherd writes out the majority of the takes that he gives. Um, others don't. Others do like what I do, which is more bullet pointed. But I'm thinking through how a segment's going to go. Like, I want to talk, like, so a Redskin game just happened, and I want to talk about these three, four things that stood out to me. I want to put them clearly into, like, a timeline, and I want to connect them all in some way. And so you get used to, you know, at first you might have to write it out to think about it. Um, and then at other times it just becomes kind of natural for you to link these things together. Like, I always, when I work with ex-athletes, I say, okay, you're not going to be the host, you're going to be the analyst, Right. And you're a basketball player. And I ask you a very simple high-end question, like, who's the best player ever, Michael Jordan or LeBron James? Answer that question, right? And there's an argument either way. And I, but I say, but before you answer that question, tell me the three things you would want me to know about why your answer would be the way it would be. And they'll say, if it's Michael Jordan, they'll say, um, played in six finals, won six championships, undefeated, greatest winner of all time. No, you know, Other than Bill Russell, no one else did anything like that. Everyone else who's great lost at some point in time in that spot. Um, only had one other real true Hall of Fame teammate, Scottie Pippen. The rest of the players he had were guys that could have played literally for anybody else. So he's ultimate brings a team together. And then um, iconic in marketing. He altered everything about the NBA. His presence changed things for the league. You could say that it started with Magic and Larry, but he's the one that turned the shoe business upside down, Nike's business upside down, became pop culture in movies, and became an iconic figure that really crossed over into pop culture and still has, you know, even to this day. And so I say, great. Now, I want you to tell me that in 45 seconds, and then they have to put together a conversation. Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player because, right? Start with that sentence, and they will do it. And it takes them a couple times, but then they figure out that all this is is structuring how you want to tell a story, make a thought, be effective. And I tell them, I tell my students in the same way, if you can learn this technique, you can get things you want. It's powerful. Like, if you can structure your communication and make an important point, cogent, clear, concise, and short. If you're able to do that, you can get out of speeding tickets, you can get a loan, you can get a job, and you can also potentially be on television, right? All of these things matter in your life. To learn how to effectively communicate is powerful, extremely powerful, if you do it well. We had uh, George Solomon, who is a legendary editor uh, in the Washington, D.C. area, uh, come on the podcast. And so I'm thinking about that conversation and how he spent his days in print and the power of editing and making words sound better on print. And as I hear you talk, I'm hearing some of those same fundamentals be brought to the table when it comes to using communication as a way to get a point across. You want things to be edited in a sense so that it's clear, it's concise, and you're making an argument. Yeah, well, you have to hear me. I mean, the biggest difference between print and broadcast is you can use some of these words that you would never say in real life in print because you're trying to paint a picture for somebody, right? So you need to use certain words to explain that in print. Those are the types of words you don't necessarily use in broadcast. And the writing is typically a little bit different as well. Like in print, you kind of make this premise and then you back it up. Um, in broadcast, you kind of do an overarching, here's what I'm about to get to. Stay with me for a moment. Meat of story. And that's why I told you that. 
right? So there's they're kind of two different, you know, I, I think systems would be the best way to put it. And you find what your voice is within all of that. And then the people who are the best at those particular forms are able to rise up. Tony Kornheiser's an amazing example of someone who can do both. That's very rare, but he's, he is an amazing example. Stephen A. Smith, same thing. Amazing example of people who understand both mediums really in and out. Kornheiser is amazingly funny on television and radio and amazingly funny in print too. And that's very rare that it works out like that because they're very different styles of writing, very different styles of communication. So for you, you've done radio, you've done TV, uh, you've been in different places and spaces and beat reporting is different than anchoring is different than radio show. Yeah. When have you felt most alive? In my career? Yeah. In my career? Um, hmm. Man, you know, that's interesting. I guess like I really enjoyed covering the Redskins, but I think it was a fulfillment of a dream type of thing. The whole reporting part of it, the beat reporting part of it, grew um, tiresome very quickly to me. It is a real grind. Like you real, I mean, you have to know everything at all times. There's no real days off. And as fun as it was, all those days in between those Sundays were tough and they're long and they, to me, got to me after a while. Are they so, lonely? Yeah, they are. Like you, uh, you know, I made really good friends with the other people who did it for the other outlets, whether it was print or broadcast, but you don't have a social life. People are counting on you. You feel you're in a competitive space. Like if someone else breaks a story, you feel terrible about it. You know, you feel like you should have had it, you know, so these, those type of things kind of get to you. For me, I like writing in short form. So I really did enjoy doing certain aspects of SportsCenter. Not all of it, but certain aspects of it I really enjoyed. Which aspects? Uh, the lead writing. I liked writing. Like if they gave me some kind of lead to write into a story, that was the stuff I, I liked. Presentation. Explain what a, what lead writing is. So, you know, uh, when the person comes on camera and they're reading to you 30 to 40 seconds and they're leading into something, I took those extremely seriously. Like some people... You know, Warner Wolf would go on the air and go, the Wizards are playing the Celtics. Let's go to the videotape. <laughs> okay. I did not look at it that way. I looked at it. That was my opportunity where I'm going to hit a home run. And so I was always looking for a way to present the material differently. And I felt like those were the spots where I had an opportunity to really show off my personality. A lot of it can become very formulaic. Um, and some people are very good at doing other aspects of it. I thought my highlights were fine. I thought my reporting for them, which was limited, was okay. But I thought my best attribute for them was writing into stories. That Is that, that when what you would at. feel it? You'd feel that flow and yeah. be in that zone state that you mentioned? I looked forward to those. I would ask for more of them. Um, I would ask for specific stories at times. It was very, you know, I, I kind of prided myself on not being egotistical about it and didn't demand anything. But if I saw a certain story where I felt like I had a particular viewpoint on it, I would ask for that one. Um, so those are the ones I really, really enjoyed. Now, I mean, that's a good question because I am on the air and I do like writing for what I'm doing for that. And so now I'm trying to figure out kind of another aspect of my career now. So I, I don't know where I feel alive at the moment. I think I'm trying to find that out. Awesome. And we'll get back to what you're up to now. But before we do that, gratitude, you mentioned 
going to ESPN, just, I'm just glad to be here. Uh, yeah. How does gratitude, how did gratitude help you? And is there any negatives that came with that approach? Yeah. Uh, you know, I think at some point you have to turn a corner and go, I belong here and become competitive about it. And I did in a lot of ways that were not healthy for me. So I think I became my own worst enemy. You did compete? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Well, I just, I got caught up in things I didn't need to get caught up in there. Ego? Is that what you're suggesting? Ego. Yeah. Your ego gets away from you after a while. Like, you know, it was one of those things when I first got there. Like I said, I I really never expected to be hired by them because I wasn't really qualified to do the things I didn't feel like I was at the time. Turned out that, you know, I did have a really good experience being an anchor there. I was on highly rated versions of that show. Um, I did learn a lot. I enjoyed it. You know, I was, and I was good at it. I was really good at it, but you know, then your ego gets away from you. And I never really had that when I was here initially, even covering the Redskins which was a really big deal in this town. I never really felt like, Oh, well, I'm the big deal here. I always felt like the team was and that my work would just kind of show, um, how I cared about my job and cared about covering them. ESPN, it becomes because there's so many shows and you're trying to get on the right ones your ego and mine got away from me while I was there. I just, you know, I, I felt like I had deserved this or deserved that. Why wasn't I doing this? Why am I not doing that? And then the atmosphere there feeds into that a little bit. And, um, you know, if you're not one of the, you know, hand select people that are on the big, big stuff like Chris Fowler or Berman or, or Scott Van Pelt or some of those people, you start to wonder how are you going to end up getting there? Why is it not happening on the timeline you want it to happen? And then you lose sight of the fact Oh, by the way, you are on their air. <laughs> you are doing these shows. They are a big deal, but then they're not big enough. And you wonder why and you, you feel like you're some kind of being victimized in some way. And it's just backwards thinking. And it took a while. And after leaving, um, it took about a good year for me to really learn that lesson. But it was the best year of my life um, being essentially out of work and having the ego knocked out of me. What did you do for that year? Looked for jobs and new things. I mean, as... Hard as I prepared to do my jobs, I was all over um, moving on. And it was interesting. At first, it was a, let me find something that's very similar to what I'm doing now. And I had, you know, really good agents and we were having 8 million interviews. And it was being turned down over and over that really helped more than anything. Like, so you're not exactly, you know, nobody's sitting here banging on your door demanding they hire you because you walked away from ESPN. And that was a good lesson to learn. And then what it helped me understand to get towards a path of what I really want to do now, which is, you know, the truth is like I left because I didn't really want to do sports center every day anymore. Like I wanted to have variety. Um, it was a great show to do. I did it for seven years. I was ready to do something else. That was part of the reason why I left. My ego got away from me. And I was asking to do other things that I weren't being, I wasn't being given those opportunities, but that's okay because I made a choice to do something different, but I needed to know what that was. And it took a while to come around to that. There was like the decision to leave wasn't thought through very well. It took a while to get back around to, okay, what is it I really actually want to do here? And I finally, it took a while, but I've started to move in that path. It's interesting. I love studying the Blue Angels uh, who fly fighter pilots hundreds of miles an hour. They perform in Annapolis uh, over the Bay and all over. When I was in San Francisco, they have, they performed there for Fleet Week. And, and so I've seen them a few times. And they have this phrase, glad to be here. And so 
to become a Blue Angel, it's a prestigious thing to become a pilot and to put on these shows. And they want to perfect everything from the march out to the plane to the actual show. And they come back and they watch film and they will go through self-critique. So they'll go through and say, yeah, you know, I pulled back a little too fast or on the march out. My right foot was a little bit too high. And they're really, really tough and they really self-critique and it's brutal. Um, and at the end of their self critique, they always say, and I'm glad to be here. And the reason they say glad to be here is to remind themselves that they've got brothers and sisters flying overseas in hostile territories, that being a blue angel is an honor and and that they should treat it as such. And that they still should always be glad to be here and never forget that they're glad to be here. The thing that I think gets lost often is that people think that gratitude and complacency are the same thing Yeah. when they're actually not. If I'm really grateful to be somewhere, I'm going to strive to continue to do better because I want to be a part of it. It doesn't mean that I become complacent. It actually, the more grateful I am, the more I'm going to want to compete to try to get better and do better. It's true. I mean, I've, no one's ever really put it to me that way, but it is absolutely how I felt, like it, exactly how I felt. I was always grateful to be there. I really, you know, I appreciated it and I understood what it was. Like, it is the pinnacle of sports broadcasting. They taught me television. I'm indebted to them. The things I'm doing now are only based on me being there, right? Like, so, and I know that and, and I appreciate it. And my connections throughout the sports world are based solely on them, maybe short of the Redskins, but like solely on them. And I appreciate all of it. And I was always grateful to be there, but I was always striving to do more than they were allowing me to do. And the last contract, ego got in the way and the complacency was a big issue for me. I just couldn't be complacent any longer. I wanted to do other things and it just wasn't the time wasn't right for them to say yes or no to any of it. And so I walked and, you know, it's life. You move on. Yeah. And I think complacency is the enemy of success. I think when we become complacent, yeah, we stop moving forward. And sometimes we got to take a step back to take a step forward. So uh, really interesting stuff. When you come back to this area, you, you do sports talk radio. And I've always been in awe of people that do sports talk radio for the amount of time and the amount of air that they have to fill talking about sports. Yeah. And so I, I'm curious, what is that like to be in a room and to know that you have to fill space? And um, look, I love sports as much as the next person, but it's still sports. It's it's not life and death. That's it's, right. It, 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 and so I, I'm curious for you what that experience is like being on air, being on Sports Talk Radio, where to me as a listener, it seems as if you every day – that you're on air have to fill space. Um, how did, how did you make sense of it? How do you think? about So it? for me, I guess I didn't, I mean, I had it in the past. I was very, you know, very locked in on the sports side of it. Um, when I came back and took over Kornheiser's spot at the station, cause he went to podcasting full time. Um, I felt a little more at Liberty to not do sports constantly. Granted, on a Monday after a Redskins game, the majority of the show is going to be about the NFL and the Redskins specifically. When John Wall, you know, gets injured, the majority of the day is going to be on that. Bryce Harper's decision. You know, those days are obvious. Or like the capture in the playoffs, the Nationals in the playoffs, where it's obvious that those, those days are going to be dominated by the sports conversation. But most days aren't those days. And I felt compelled to not just talk about sports. And maybe that was probably a liability, but I always felt like, I'm not just going to pretend that I like these things more than I really like them. And maybe it's just age too, but I do really like them, but there's also a lot of other things I like. So the space ended up being 
I'm really just going to talk about what interests me and hope that that's enough. You know, I think in the end, all you can really do at that point is, and I've always said this, I'm going to do my show my way. And if people like it, great. And if they don't, at least I have no regrets. I didn't do it some other way that someone else told me to do it this way. And then it failed and then I get to blame them. No, you know, I did it my way and, you know, I could parse out whatever objections I have to the support system I had, but they never told me what to say or not to say when I was on the air. So in the end, I'm the one who created all the segments. So if I'm still on the air, it's because of my, you know, ideas. And if it's not, you know, it's not. And that's the way I felt about it. So there's a common thread that you're hitting on, which is authenticity. And you've talked about the importance of authenticity. And so what I'm hearing is, yes, I'm going to follow all these people and uh, keep my ear to the ground and, and, and listen and try to figure out how I can be better. And at the end of the day, when I turn on the microphone, I want it to be my voice and bring a level of authenticity to, to whatever I do. When you see yourself as your authentic self, what does that look like? Oh God. I mean, that's probably with my kids, you know, more than anything ever. I mean, like that's when I really feel like I'm just being myself when I'm with my children and with my family, you know, in professionally, um, I've always just kind of felt like I'm just going to do it my way and that's just the way it's going to be. And I, you know, I can assure you that I will do it professionally, reliably. Um, you won't have to question my work ethic. I'll be there. Uh, and I will learn from others, but you're going to get me and that's it. And if it's not what you like, then great, we'll move on. But if it is what you like, great. We'll expand the relationship. So I don't, I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to, I don't think I've ever gone in there and felt like I was faking it, you know, on any of these things. How would the people that work with you describe you when you're on air? I don't know. I really don't. I don't know. I don't know. I've never, I probably should think about that, but I don't know. I mean, I know like, at least as far as I can tell, I get along with everybody. So I think I'm, I'm an easy person to work with in general. Um, but I don't know. You'd have to ask them. Maybe I will. Uh, <laughs> biggest mistake that you've made on air? Is there a time where you were like, man, that, I just wasn't at my best? Or um, I mean, when you're on air as much as, as I have been, you make a million of them. Um, but nothing that was too catastrophic, I don't think. I got into a public fight once with Michael Wilbon about something he had said about Washington, D.C., and that was probably a mistake to let it go as far as it did. I didn't do anything on air. It was just kind of a back and forth social media thing. And that was probably a mistake. You know, like, I, I don't know what the point of it, of doing it was. You know, I, I don't really like to engage in things like that. Some people are really good at, at that. They've made a business of fighting with people on social media. That's kind of not my thing. And I did in this one occasion. I got, in, and I don't even, I like him. I don't even know why I did. I just didn't like what he said about the city. And it blew up into something that was stupid. Pride for Washington. Uh, how does that play out when you're, covering the, the, the Redskins. You talked about this dream job for that team, but you spend eight years being in the weeds with them. Yeah. How do you, how do you balance sort of uh, fandom and uh, doing your job? That took a while at first, but like once you're behind the curtain of anything, you see how it really works, and then you realize it's nothing like you thought. So it's easier, I think, you know, then to just strip that stuff away. And you have a job to do, and – you know, I never like pretend that I didn't want them to win. I did. <laughs> I was, it made my job easier too. When they won, more people would listen. There would be more interest. But I'm not going to lie about it. I mean, like if they're making ridiculous decisions, or or their players aren't playing up to a particular standard, or their coaching is lackluster, or their ownership is dysfunctional, I was willing to say it. 
you know, and that all actually came out of love for wanting them to be better. Really had little to do with like trying to knock them down, but more have an ex set, try to set an expectation of what I had for them when I was a kid, which was set for me, which was they were the standard bearer and they're no longer anywhere near that. And I think to sit there and pretend and kowtow to them and say everything's fine when they make the playoffs once every eight years, I think would be ridiculous. You know, like, I don't know how anyone could come to a conclusion like that. And whenever I hear anybody covering the team that, like, says things like that, I'm like, what what alternate universe are you in? You have no authenticity if you're watching this every year and seeing a 7-9 and nine team every single year and making excuses for them. Like, you're not, you're in an alternate universe. You don't, you don't really see what's in front of you, or you're refusing to because you think it's going to placate them to say things that they want to hear. I want to go back to you. What routines habits is there anything that you do to make sure that when you are live you are where you need to be yeah uh it was a lot of that um there you know i i mean i want to know the subject matter in general outside of something like this where i don't know what the hell you're gonna ask me but i mean like i i want to know the subject matter if i'm going on to something where i'm expected to be an authority on it i want to know the subject matter so i'll be well read um i will have in my mind the two or point, two or three points I want to make about something at some point throughout the discussion of it, but being flexible to your point about listening to others and being willing to uh, have a divergent conversation about it. Um, and I think that just takes time of being on air and listening, more than anything, listening. And then there are some routines that occur, especially if I'm going to do something like a sports center or a radio show there are some, I don't want to call it meditation, but there are some meditative qualities of things that I do just to kind of put my mind into a place of I'm going on the air. What are those? Uh, breathing exercises, more just deep breathing, a couple deep breaths, slows everything down. Um, you know, you'll see a lot of people on the air speaking really quickly, fast. I think it's because they're kind of either nervous or their nervous systems are kind of subconsciously telling them, um, time is moving faster than it really is when it's not, um, 30 seconds can feel like an eternity on the air. So you need to kind of get into a pacing of it. Um, when you are delivering something, you really want to be breathing a certain way. Um, very slow and measured. Your voice should be coming from your gut, not your chest. Um, and therefore you won't catch your breath and you won't get, uh, you won't, you know, stumble as much. You'll be able to self-correct easier too. If there's mistakes in front of you in a teleprompter or, you know, you could self-edit your own thoughts. It allows you the opportunity to do it if you're not speaking that quickly. Uh, so there's kind of like a, I, I always just describe it kind of as a meditative quality where it's a very small kind of practice where I just kind of get myself into a space where I'm about to go on the air. Can you remember the last time where you felt really nervous? On the air? Um, not really. We're off air. Really nervous off air. Uh, Besides, when someone's getting arrested and thrown downstairs, <laughs> that was nerve wracking. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's that one. Um, I don't know. I don't think. I don't know. I don't think. Maybe I'm not someone who gets nervous very often. The most things I get nervous about are things that are out of my control. Like I, if I'm gonna go to a doctor's appointment with my kids, then I'm nervous. You know, like I want to make sure everything's okay. I think I get nervous about things that aren't in my control, but, but I, I am, you know, control freaks the wrong way to put it, but I feel like I'm in, in control of my own, you know, ability on the air. And so every once in a while I'll get thrown for a loop from somebody 
you know, and they'll ask me something or, or they'll ask me to do something that I probably shouldn't have said yes to. But, you know, most of the time I feel okay. I me- Oh, I remember, I always had this dream when I was a kid of being a stand-up comedian. And um, one time I got the opportunity to um, host this thing at the Warner Theater. <laughs> Never done stand-up comedy in my life. It's Warner Theater. And they asked me just to introduce the real comedians when they come out. And about three days before the event, they said, um, hey, we just want to check in with you, make sure everything's okay. You got the names and, you know, the, what, how they want you to introduce them. And, you know, have some fun with it. You don't have to be too scripted. And you're going to do like uh, five to ten minutes before they come on. Wow. They didn't even tell me, right? They, just, they, they had described it as you're just going to introduce, you know, these were real, like, real comedians. And it was a, some fundraiser. <laughs> and I agreed to do it because I was locally on the radio. And I, and I got the hives, like literally got the hives thinking about it. Like, oh, I've always wanted to do that. Here's your opportunity to do that. I don't really have any material. And I don't think I had ever been more nervous in my life. I don't remember a word that I said. I remember all you can see when you're on a stage like that. I'd never been on a stage like that before is the spotlight. You can't see the people, the spotlights in your eyes. You know, there's a lot of people there, but you can't see any of them. And I just remember words coming out of my mouth. And I don't remember, you know, I don't know pacing for comedy. I don't know timing. I don't know how to do it. Like I'm, I'm a believer in the craft of broadcasting and there's a different crowd. Like I appreciate comedians when you see them perform, like you see, how much time and dedication they went into, not just the writing of the joke, but how they were going to deliver it. And all of those things kind of morphed into, I could not wait till that was over. And I think I threw up after it. I'm pretty sure I did. I was never more nervous in my life than for that. And I'd been like visualizing doing something like that. I just, you know, no one, no one told me it was going to happen. I probably have to be careful about saying this sort of stuff because I spoke on a podcast recently where I said, I would want to make one song. Like, I just want to make one hit song. I want to be a one-hit wonder. One-hit wonder. That's it. I don't want to be a musician, but I would want to create one song and try to make it, you know, go platinum. Why can't you do that? I think I can. I right. Be- I believe I can. Yeah. I, I just... As long as you are determined that the first thousand of them you do, if they get if they fail, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Because if your goal is only to have one, one, then who cares how many of them don't become that? I think that's accurate. So I agree. Um, so we'll see if I, if I make that happen. And then the other thing that I've always wanted to do is do stand-up once. And I don't think I'm particularly funny, just like I don't think I have a particularly good voice for music. But there's something that, for me, both of those represent, which is fearlessly putting yourself out there and making yourself vulnerable. I like, agree. Like, I think musicians, to share their voice is the the word I'm, I was going to say like heroic. It's not heroic, like military people, that's her, heroism, but there's something that I'm jealous of. I, I, maybe you could find the word for me. There's something that I love about that vulnerability piece to put yourself out there. And then to your point, like stand up, I think is so hard and I would love the opportunity to just feel that once. Yeah. And if I bomb, like I think I'll probably learn something from bombing. And if I actually crush it, man, I feel like if you if you can get up in front of people and deliver to your point, the timing, the the joke, there's so much that goes into that magic. 
to be able to feel the energy of an audience and know how to actually deliver. Yeah. I love watching great stand-up comedy. I think it is so awesome. I think like if I just sat here and read Jerry Seinfeld's jokes to you, they wouldn't be funny, no. but it's the way he delivers them. So he understands that. Like he he literally understands that like the jokes are clearly funny, but they're way funnier when he says them. And it's the way he says them. It's something about the way he says them. And it's funny. I've had a couple of opportunities to do very like a few minutes as like, again, like being like a local personality, sometimes they ask you to come to the improv or something like that. Actually, I have a friend of mine whose husband is a professional stand-up comedian. He was in town and he said, you know, we're doing the side room at the improv. You want to come out? You know, like, do you want to do a couple of minutes? And I'm like, all right. And I wasn't nervous at all. Like I thought about what I was going to say. I didn't really script it out and it was fun. I had fun. I, th- I think like to go back to this idea of, can you get rid of the teleprompter? I actually feel like if I could just get rid of, like, have the ideas in my head, but then trust my own instincts, I think over time, if I did it, I actually think I probably would get relatively decent at it if I didn't try to script out every literal thing I said, but just have the general ideas. And, but I mean, it's not like, I don't think I could like turn around and just do it. I think it would take a, like, like anything else, like you don't just turn around and get on Sports Center. You don't just turn around and get into the ice house. Like, I think it would take a long time, but I actually think now with the idea of just trust your instincts, understand how to communicate and hopefully know what's funny. I actually think I could do something like, not that I'm going to, but I actually think I could. Maybe you and I will do it together yeah. one day. You know, it's interesting as I'm hearing you talk, Chris Rock, I think he goes around New York and does his material underground over and over and over and then adjusts and figures out what works and what doesn't before he actually presents it. So what we think is instinct is often a iteration of lots of analyzing and lots of analyzing. And it's all well-practiced until you say it out loud. I say this to my students all the time. I go, read that sentence to me that you wrote out loud. Would you ever say that in real life? Like is, is that come off the way you intended it to? Because if it doesn't, then you need to change the wording. And oftentimes it's just a little tweak of this word or that word. And in the case of comedians, that stuff really matters. Like one word makes something funny or not funny. The way you take that pause makes something funny or not funny. And the ones who are incredible at it, like Chris Rock, you know, are tacticians at this. You talk about preparation. That's the thing people don't know. This guy probably did that routine eight million times before you ever really saw it on the HBO special. And even that one on the HBO special probably isn't even exactly what he had meant to do in the first place because he adjusted as the crowd probably reacted to him. But that's years of experience, you know, doing that type of stuff. Love it. And it's interesting. I've spent time with Chris Tucker, the other Chris, and you expect him just to be funny, like nonstop, just constantly funny. And I've spent time with Ben Stiller, uh, Vince Vaughn and no one walks around just being that funny no. all the time. I like my guess is Will Ferrell does, but almost unintentionally. There's something about him that everything he does somehow is funny. Yeah, probably. <laughs> like, you know, like Vince Vaughn. Uh, it was interesting. I was in a room with both Vince Vaughn and Ben Stiller, and and Vince Vaughn had a presence about him that was who he is in the movies. Like I'm like ready to go to Las Vegas with Vince Vaughn right then and there. Like, let's go, whatever you want. Cause he could own a room. Yeah. But Ben Stiller's kind of in the corner, just minding his own and yep. just sort of being uh, uncomfortable. Yeah. And so comedy is fascinating to me. 
What I'd love to close with you is to learn about what you're up to now, because I think it's really interesting. Uh, tell everyone what you're up to and, and what you're creating. I know you, you still do a lot of different things, but I'm most curious about the podcasting space and, yeah. and how you uh, think about it. I love, you know, I love being on air and I don't want to stop. So I'm fortunate to still have a show here locally on Fox 5 called Like It or Not that I do four days a week. So I love doing that. And I think it kind of it, it feeds, you know, the ego and it feeds the whole desire to be on television. So I do that. And I just started a, I have a consulting company, which probably boring to talk about here, but I do. And it's we not work, boring. Uh, you're talking <laughs> to a coaching consultant. Well, I, we do. We work with a lot of young talent and um, local news talent, actually. And we're trying to help them grow and mature and perform better. And at the same time, help them curate their content for new consumers who, you know, aren't watching the news the way they used to watch it. So we're trying to help them figure out how that works down the road. And then my latest thing um, is called Empire, and I opened up a studio space that will be functional this week. And, um, you know, I've always had a desire to be on the production side. I've always had kind of an entrepreneurial side. I've always been paid talent. And I really, you know, this is exciting for me to go into something that's very different and out of my comfort zone for sure like trying to procure clients and making them happy. Like that's new for me. I am more used to what is it you want to do? Okay. And then I, I help them just do it, but I do it as a paid, you know, talent. Um, so this is, this is interesting to me. And my goal is to build a platform that helps illuminate podcasts to people shows how easy and how far superior they are to other audio content that is out there, specifically the radio and my goal is to build something that will be an original content platform and an aggregator for all the things that you didn't know was out there, but you'd really like. What's your biggest fear? Um, that it won't, uh, I don't know. I don't think I, I don't, I don't know. I don't have a fear. Like I, I trust myself not to fail. So I don't think it will fail. Will it be what I want it to be? I don't know. You know, like, I mean, I, I don't know what I don't know at this point. So I, I'm looking for help from mentors from every business space to help me guide me towards these type of goals to avoid mistakes and keep me focused on the things I need to be focused on. Um, but, you know, I guess maybe... I guess the only fear would be that I, I don't understand business. So I think that would be probably the biggest fear to me, but I'm willing to learn it. So it's, I don't feel like I have all the answers. I have a vision of what I think would be a really successful business model that'd be fun to be a part of. Like I would like to be part of something where I'm helping people collaborate to bring really cool, interesting, original stories that other major platforms may have ignored. Uh, because it didn't fit whatever their profile was. I'm kind of open to these ideas. And so I want to work with people that have um, that have, have run into it. And even people like myself, for years, you know, every we all have these ideas of what we want to do. Most of the time you're ignored because the networks only have so much space to deal with and only have so many resources to deal with and can't give everybody everything they want. Well, I think in this podcasting space and specifically in a space like mine, I want to be pitched. Because I want to hear the ideas that are out there, and I, then I want to help make it. And really the fun part for me is digging into producing it and making it sound the way you envisioned it sounding. And we all benefit from that by telling great stories. It's 2030. 
What does the media landscape look like? Oh, God. Um, I don't think a lot of people watch television anymore. Um, they do watch it on screens, bigger screens. Uh, most people are receiving just about everything they want within their phones. Their phones are probably a lot larger than we're used to seeing. Uh, not tablet size, but somewhere in the middle. Um, the majority of news is going to be consumed that way. I don't really know what the what the space for movies is going to be and how that's going to be viewed and what their model looks like because getting people to go to those spaces, I don't know. Um, and these higher-end productions are already happening on Netflix and Amazon, so I'm not really sure the studios are going to have to deal with that. That They can get 45 million people to watch Bird Box on Netflix. That's got to be frightening to them when they're not going to get 45 million people to go see a massive production um, that they do any longer in a weekend. So that's, that's an interesting dynamic. Sports is going to be really interesting. I think the majority of it's going to be pay, pay-per-play that it's Google or Amazon or Facebook or those groups are going to basically own all the rights and you're going to pay as you go or pay for specific plans. But I don't think there's going to be a lot of free television anymore. That's what I think. That just triggered something that I have to ask you. So this past weekend, the Alliance of American Football, whatever the league is called, I might be butchering it, uh, they launched. And the early TV ratings are... Pretty, pretty good. Imp- pretty impressive. Pretty good. Yeah. Shocking uh, as like a basketball guy to see. I think they outdid the NBA. It was right around the same. Right around yeah, the same. Right around the same rating. How do you make sense of that? The football is still America's number one sport and it's not close. Um, you know, will that last? I don't know. Like if they played their championship game up against the Warriors Celtics or whatever it's going to be, um, do you think it would rate anywhere near the worst? I don't. But it doesn't have to, right? right? Like that's that's fine. I think it's um, you know, despite this popular notion that's been put out there by a lot of people that football is declining in its interest, I don't believe that. I do believe that the ratings has to do more with the way people watch the games as opposed to uh, there's a lack of interest in it. The Super Bowl still will be the number one rated broadcast in this country 30 some odd of the 50 top rated programs will be football games and college football is probably not that far behind as the number two sport so for all of its issues that it has and they are real um i still believe that football as of right now is by far the most important sport in this country and that could change but it's not changing anywhere as fast as people have predicted it would so I want to give you a platform to promote whatever it is that you want to promote. Certainly give us your social media handle uh, or handles. Uh, let us know where we can find you and learn about you. And uh, yeah, you have a megaphone. Sure. Uh, Real Bram, W-B-R-A-M, um, is my handle for Twitter or Instagram. I'm more of a lurker than a poster, so but you can see a little bit. I need to get better at that, but I've always felt like that's a dangerous space for someone in my position that I feel like you, you make one mistake on Twitter and it's time stamped for the rest of your life. So I'm very careful about what I say on it. Uh, EmpireMedia.com will be coming out soon. I have not launched the website yet. I wanted it to coincide with the studio being up and running, but you'll be able to learn about that. You'll see the shows we're working with now. And uh, more than anything, I just want people and brands to know that we're open for business I have a long history of performing. 
so I can I have a unique viewpoint of how things should be put together and how your personalities should fit into those models. And at the same time, I am looking forward to just collaborating with people on ideas and stories. And I'm open to all fresh ideas. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to what's going to be an interesting journey. I mean, this is my first truly solo-owned business for now. I clearly will be hiring people at some point. But for now, this is my baby, my first real baby. And I'm really excited to, to see where it goes. Well, I'm excited for you as well and can't wait to follow along. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, Instagram intentional underscore performers. And of course, you can see this show and all of our other shows at intentionalperformers.com. Bram, thanks for grabbing coffee with a stranger. Uh, we've, I think both Thanks of for us, uh, saving our lives. <laughs> appreciate yeah. it. Brian Levinson, hero. Uh, give me a cape. Um, and so just thank you for, for the time and, and for coming on the podcast. Thanks for the conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. So I do take preparation extremely seriously. Like I will know the subject back and forth and I won't agree to do something if I don't feel like I know it enough um, because I don't want to feel that way when I go on the air. I want to be able to feel like if all the conditions around me aren't optimal or don't work in the way that I expect them to, that I'm going to be fine. Like the last person I want to worry about is myself, right? And I've, you know, I teach people too and I try to tell them the most important thing on television or radio is authenticity, but it's hard to do, which means you just have to give yourself the permission to be yourself when you're on the air, for better or for worse, but you'll resonate better, right? Like Dick Vitale really is that way. Like he really is, you know, Stephen A. Smith really is that way. That is really how he is. You know, there are other people, it's obvious that they're performing to some degree. And their performance is based on them scripting out all these things they're gonna say, and that's why they're inauthentic. For me, if I know the topic, I feel like, and it's hard to describe, but you feel like you end up in some kind of zone when you start speaking. <laughs>